0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today I have as my guest, David Barkley, who tends to work with tech f- uh, founders in scale-up businesses. He's a business coach, and he focuses on developing people skills in leaders. His clients are frequently under pressure to build their businesses fast, grow performing teams, and de- uh, deliver results to investors. His main role is to make sure that the leaders don't lose their shit, perform at their best, and get the best out of their teams. David, would you mind just giving us the 60 seconds on how you got to where you are?
1: Sure. Well, I was all set to do an MBA. I'd sort of done all the process, found a sort of nice entrepreneurial one to do. Uh, and I listened to a talk uh, from a guy who was talking about how to sort of how people work. And if we really understood how people work and what they do, what makes them buzz, if you really understood their needs, their motivations how they process information, all those types of things. How would that change and revolutionize your business relationships? So I thought that was quite interesting. So I asked for a couple of books, just as recommendations for further reading. To cut a long story short, I ended up studying with him for about five, six years, doing a lot of NLP. That then led me to branch off into my own about five, six years ago. So yeah, everything NLP, emotion, intelligence, all people kind of things. That's what I love.
0: So, David, tell me this, what are the four most common questions people ask you about getting the best out of their teams and their people?
1: Four most common questions. Everyone thinks their problems are unique, but often like they're not. Just like everyone else. Exactly. Yeah. Just like everyone else. I'm special. Um, you've probably never heard this before. The eyes roll. Uh-huh. And off we go. It's usually around one of the sort of four areas. So one is, uh, how do I make sure my team or myself are more focused? How do I deal with stress better? The stress around running sort of businesses, being an entrepreneur, being a CEO, founder is unbelievable. And sort of 48% will have at least one mental health challenge in their life. So it's often around stress. Three question would be, I tell my team very clearly what to do and they don't do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, go on. Um,
1: so <laughs> you're straight into communication problems, which the root of that is never, ever, ever tell somebody what to do. But anyway, we'll get to that maybe a bit later. And number four, common one is, how do I get a better work-life balance?
0: Okay, which of those four do you want to tackle first?
1: Whatever, you, wherever you want to go, my friend, I'm happy to do ever. We could do the stress one, which is quite interesting.
0: Okay, so why do people get stressed?
1: That's a very good question. I think a lot of it is about the expectation or perceived expectations they have on themselves. So as soon as you start taking investor money, the game changes because you now have people you actually need to deliver to. And as nice as they'll be on calls and emails and board meetings, you know and they know that they want a bigger check <laughs> back than the one they gave you and in as short as possible space of time. And I think so. a lot of it is actually the perception of things, not necessarily the actual reality. So I think they, that kind of adds an uh, extra load of stress. I think we also live in this kind of um, society where it's cool to be an entrepreneur now. 20 years ago it wasn't, now it really is. And, you know, we, we sort of had this thing where entrepreneurs know all the answers, often they don't, so imposter syndrome really kicks in. I think imposter syndrome, by the way, is a really good thing. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> but it, all that kind of stuff leaps in, and plus, probably the underlying thing is you can never work hard enough on your business. It's a sort of mantra that a lot of people have, which, again, I think is completely wrong. Um, I don't think you need to be working on your business all the time.
0: Absolutely, and if you listen to people like Mike McCallowitz. He's really strong on the whole idea that you, the business should work for you. Uh, you don't work for the business. And I remember a quote from Ross Perot years ago. He says, I haven't got an MBA, but I've got 2000 uh, of them on my payroll. And you don't need to have all the answers. The answers are out there if you've got bothered to hire good people or get externals to help you. And if you've got the courage and the vulnerability to ask for help. I'd add one other thing to that, uh, which is most entrepreneurs aren't really entrepreneurs. They're people with a job, and they call it a business, and more often than not, it's a practice. And if they're in tech, they've created their ugly baby, which they think somehow people will suddenly queue up to buy. And what they actually bought was a sales job, but they're technicians, and they don't have good processes, and they don't hire well, because their tendency is to hire in their own image, only weaker and to think it's about the product. And in tech nowadays, let's be honest, virtually every vendor is nothing more than a cog in the machine. You're a bit player, because you are one part of an enterprise's IT stack. And no one cares about your product. And frankly, most of them are interchangeable, no matter how unique you think they are. So in the first three months, first four months, what is it that you do to try and shake them out of these acts of idiocy and this delusional uh, state that they're in the biggest thing is getting them to
1: slow down which kind of leads on to one of the other ones which is focus you will never meet an entre- you very very rarely meet a founder a tech founder or any kind of entrepreneur entrepreneur who will say i just have loads of time of course that we can chat whenever I, you know my time is very fluid you'll never meet them they're always yes my time's really busy you know i've got meetings from you know six in the morning to 12 o'clock at night every single day and a lot of it is is just actually getting them to slow down so they could make far better decisions.
0: And to stop them being a bloody bottleneck. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. problem is, if you're constantly saying, oh, I'm busy, I'm in meeting after meeting, you're a bottleneck. Yeah. You are actually the biggest threat to the survival of your business. Wake up. Sorry, David, yeah. I interrupted. No, no, no,
1: no. That's, that's exactly it. You, know, you, just, you just, most of the time, you're just going, guys, guys, if you've got endless, even if they're five-minute meetings where people are coming back to you to ask questions, That just means they're not empowered to do their job. You're creating a crutch for yourself, which is going to cripple your business. And everyone goes, yeah, but when it gets to this point, then I'm going to have more time. No, because you've already set the patterns of behavior that are only going to compound on that problem because everyone's
0: going to keep coming back to you. And you create a culture of learned helplessness and delegation, which means you get run ragged and burn out and you turn into the ass you become under pressure what you need to be is your best self. And uh, Mike McCallowitz has got a lovely 4D model and it's broken up into four quadrants, do, decide, delegate, and design. And in an ideal world, you should be spending 50 to 80% of your time in the design phase. The reality is you're spending 80% of your time in the doing phase, which means that you're doing the work, you should be paying other people to do or you are paying other people to do and uh, you're interfering. You haven't got good processes and systems, so you haven't de-skilled the process so that lower-skilled, lower-paid people can do higher-value work, so you can focus on higher-value activities. And a net result of that is that you create a culture which is dependent on passing stuff up the chain of command, which means that nothing gets done and you're constantly trying to firefight. So in effect, you become chief fire officer and head arsonist. All in one. So, when you tell them to slow down, what are you telling them about systematizing?
1: Well, really, it's first of all we get we get the well. There's a few things we do. One of the things is we get the diary out and you get two colours and go right. What is important? That's one colour, and what's urgent? That's another colour.
0: Yeah.
1: And you have a love. It becomes very very clear then as to where time is being poured into a bucket with all the holes in. Usually the bucket doesn't even have a bottom on most of these, and it's just pouring straight out. So, um, it's the colander. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, firstly, it's just getting them to, you know, look at where they're spending their time. Time is a commodity; we spend it. Where are you spending it, and what's the the value back that you're getting? From
0: and there, can I just pick up on something? You should yeah. be investing your time, not spending it. And there's a yeah. very important difference there because if you're investing, you're getting a return. If you're spending it, it's just a
1: loss. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, that's a really important clarification. And that's certainly, sorry, that's the this, this heart of what I meant to say. Um, but yeah, there's a very important distinction there. And that's, uh, so that's sort of a crucial step. The other point is, is that we do emotional intelligence profiling with people, because people often have these enormous blind spots where they think they're really good at something, and they're actually not. Or you say, what do you like under pressure? Nobody goes. Oh, I'm rubbish. I crumble. I, you know, I cry when I get home. I you know, look for a cupboard to crawl into and um, with a bottle of whiskey. But I've never met anybody who says that. Most people say, "Yeah, I love pressure. I really thrive well under it." Well, try asking the people who work for them how they um, cope with, with pressure, and you soon get a very different picture. So we do these emotion intelligence profiles, which again kind of highlight some of those um, potential blind spots. So one of the things is how well do you work interdependently with people? So under pressure, sometimes people work more independently, or more dependently on other people. Conflict resolution, you want to stay nice and assertive. Some people go passive, some people go aggressive, some people go high in both, so passive aggressive. And it's just really understanding, for them to understand themselves better so that you can make those changes. Very rarely do I tell clients what to do. Very rarely. Because it doesn't doesn't really work if you tell someone what to do, because then they will go yes or no.
0: People never argue with their own data.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I did have someone try this week. just to. Um, we did this emotional intelligence report. Uh, so last week is for a hire. I went through it with them. They didn't make it through to the next stage of the interview process. Um, but I said, look, I'll have to go through the report with you. Just give you some feedback. So he went through the report and he said, well, I don't know who this person is. <laughs> you know, this isn't me. I said, well, <laughs> I had to bite my lip before saying, well, who did fill in the questionnaire then? <laughs> because this is what you, you filled in, Sunshine. But a lot of the time it's that. Sometimes it reveals truths about ourselves that are uncomfortable, and he might have felt quite defensive because he didn't get the job and everything
0: else. Or he has a very low level of self awareness,
1: which again might have been, may or may not have been flagged up on the emotion (laughs) (laughs) No comment. But again, those things are quite interesting. But the other thing that was quite interesting was his flexibility was very very low, which again comes out in the yeah. But I do all these things. Well, this says you don't. So. And the fact that you're inflexible to talk about it shows a sign of lack of flexibility.
0: So that also indicates a closed mindset rather than a growth mindset.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So um,
0: so sorry to interrupt, but and um, if anyone wants a blind spot survey, then email me at marcuscalki at me.com. And we look at a number of personal blind spots that will be holding your business back I'm sure David has uh, some as well. Do, do you have anything that uh, you want to share with the uh, the audience? Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm pretty just this emotional intelligence profile. Um, it's quite good. It's a 38-page report. Goes into 16 different parts of emotional intelligence. You know, from emotional resilience, flexibility, goal-directedness, personal power, self-regard, regard for others, self-awareness, all those kind of things. It's a real deep dive into you, which I think is the first
0: starting point for any leader. <laughs> very, very good. Okay, so le- let's dig a little bit deeper into mental resilience uh, as well. When a a founder is starting to really feel that pressure build and perhaps taking it home, crying in a cupboard, what's the knock-on effect? What's the ripple effect of that? The term I
1: like to use is leakage. Everyone thinks, yeah, but when I get back in the office, I'm fine. You Physically, that never works because you have leakage like the body can't lie you know if you can tell a lie but there'll be some sort of leakage in body language voice tone and as soon as that stress starts to build it becomes you get leakage and you get transference to other people people feel a bit more edgy in your voice tone you become a bit more urgent in email even if you're trying really hard to cover it up to protect your team it starts to sort of show and that's where people start getting edgy that's where people start the behavior really kicks out and that can be the sort of with hindsight, people go, that's the beginning of the end, often um, in behavior, if it's not caught early enough.
0: So in terms of the questions that founders should be asking themselves when they, start, when they recognize that yeah. that's happening, if you want better answers, ask better questions. So what are the better questions that you're teaching your yeah. founders to ask of themselves so that they can get, either get help or get out of those, uh, that rut?
1: Yeah, it actually comes back to something that you said earlier, which most people skim past, and certainly the British public often don't like to talk about. It's a very uncomfortable um, word, which is vulnerability. You know, we, we tend to think of being vulnerable as being weak. It's not weak. It's actually a strength if used properly. And I think a lot of the time, because we have the, you know, a lot of the time, partly because of the sort of imposter syndrome or whatever people have, people get very defensive around vulnerability. So instead of just you know, going into a team saying, guys, look, we're feeling the pressure on here. Let's take a step back, everybody. What are we really trying to accomplish here? Let's talk about the pressures we're under. Let's talk about how we're processing emotions. Because it might well be that I send a short email to you. I don't mean it to be short. I'm just under a bit of pressure. So the more you understand me, the more hopefully I'll understand you. That's a great starting and actually builds far deeper relationships if the environment's right, if the culture's right to, you know, to be doing those things.
0: I'd go one step further, but this requires even more courage, which is to lead with an apology and take responsibility. So 100%. I, before I start, I want to tell you how disappointed I am in myself. I've failed you, I've let you down, and I've allowed my, the pressure that I'm feeling to get between me and serving you well. And yep. I want your forgiveness, so can you forgive me? And start with that. And you'd be amazed at just how powerful that is because people will think, hang on a second, they they, they will recognize that this is a watershed moment. Now, the problem with doing that is you better bloody well mean it because if you then start going back and being an arse afterwards, they're going to say, yeah, he didn't really mean it. But the the word vulnerable comes from the Latin root vulnerabilis. And what it means is to put yourself in harm's way, to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. So Roman legionary would rip off his armor and go into battle unarmored. And that was an act of courage, perhaps a little bit stupid, but definitely an act of courage. And vulnerability is the greatest sign of strength. And it's a huge sign of strength of character. And if you look at leaders, so JFK after the Bay of Pigs admitting that he screwed up was a watershed moment in his presidency because people recognized at that point that they had a, a leader of greatness despite the fact that he was failing. And if we look at what's happening at the moment, um, the other side of the pond and also over here with our leaders, their failure to take responsibility just deepens the distrust. So, you yeah, know, if, if you ever need uh, to see the antithesis of what that looks like, just run, you know, someone uh, denying any culpability for COVID and uh, the death rate.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and also, if you look at the, you know, and even then in the tech sort of entrepreneurial world, you look at the sort of unicorn founders. There aren't many that have that vulnerability. If you look at the sort of the, the public persona at least anyway, there aren't many that sort of go, yeah, guys, we got this wrong. Really sorry. Hands up. Yeah, publicly or privately. I'm reading. I read a really, really good book the other day. Uh, what was it? It's probably around somewhere in here. Which is bad blood around the whole um, that tech on in Silicon Valley that did the the blood reports. Oh And you right. just the, the um. So I can't remember the name of it. We'll, we'll probably dig it in and we can add it in to this at some point. But it was amazing. The sort of building on this, just lie after lie after lie, and it became systematic. That anybody who challenged anything were out the door within minutes. And you just create this incredibly toxic environment.
0: Well, I will go the other way, and all of the tech sales leaders that I've interviewed for the Scale Ups and Hypergrowth podcast are running super fast growth companies. You know, growing 70 percent a quarter, hundred thousand percent growth over a seven year period in revenues, and every one of them is vulnerable. They look for coaching. They take responsibility. They own their shit. They own their 50% of anything that they're involved in. And they understand in all of their dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is them. They invite criticism. They hire people who will stand up to them. And what they don't do is they don't hire people who say yes a lot. They hire people who speak their mind and who understand that once we have made a decision, then we all get behind it. But up to that point, we can have stand-up fights and we can you know, roll up our sleeves and get out the knives and go at it hammer and tongs. And the problem is that people who are brittle uh, are afraid of that. And people who are flexible uh, do not break in the wind. And when you're growing at scale, you need to be ready to adapt. And that kind of change is desperately uncomfortable unless you're prepared for it. So that then comes back to systems and systematization, planning in advance, having a clear vision, which is communicated to everybody, making sure that you hire people who align with that vision and those values, and recognizing that the business that you are on the 1st of January will be Massively different to the business it is on the 1st of April, different again to the 1st of September, and different again to the 1st of January again. So, the business that you start out on the 1st of January will be different on the 31st of March, will be different again on the 1st of July, will be different again on the 1st of September. And by the 1st of January, it will be a wildly different business again. So you need to be ready for that, which means that your plan has to cater for that and preempt it so that you've already got those mechanisms in place. So, for example, recruitment, you should be planning your uh, roles that you're going to need six months, a year, 18 months, two years, three years in advance. You need to have budget set aside for when those roles are required, which means that you need to understand what the trigger points are. Uh, You need to have the processes to underpin it. You need to have the performance metrics that tell you when you are going to go through a growth spurt and give you preemptive information so you can adjust your trajectory, modify your behavior. But very few entrepreneurs, no, let me rephrase that. Very few business owners and founders do that. Genuine entrepreneurs do. Because they recognize that they don't know everything, but if they can plan ahead, then when things happen that they're not expecting, they have the bandwidth to be able to handle them and bring in resource to tackle them. So tell me this, what are the three questions people don't ask, but should?
1: One of them just speaks directly into what you just said, which was probably getting you bad around the wording on this, but the essential is, is how will my team evolve? You know, your team at, from, you know, during seed stage is going to look very different to your team at series A, series B stage, or at least it and should. <laughs> the problem is that people have a society, can have a slightly warped sense of, sort of loyalty or, well, this person was in me with me when we had five people. We gave them the head of marketing title. They're a 24-year-old out of university and they've done a brilliant job. Well, now, how do I keep them as head of marketing? Do I get a brilliant assistant next to them who's going to help them or mentor them or whatever? And actually, again, you create a, you create a blind spot where you, you've taken someone probably far higher than they would do in any kind of corporate you know, growth curve, but they're just not going to get from the company from, you know, that you've got the company from one to three, now you do it from three to 30. And they, greatest respect, won't have the skills, the expertise to do that. And that's really hard. So how do you evolve that team and, and grow that?
0: That therefore requires you as the founder, as the leader, to be ready to make difficult choices and have uncomfortable conversations with people. Mm -hmm. Because if they're not fit for purpose, can they evolve into another role? If they are fit for purpose, do you have a runway to develop them into the role that they are going to have to fulfill in three months, six months, a year, two years? And this is why I I fundamentally have an issue with the lack of management training, because we're, especially in management, they get three percent of the training budget, and managers are the most undertrained and overexposed people in the business. Middle management—it's a shitty job, it's a tough job, and they don't get the support that they need. Yeah, that is a travesty.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And speaking to that point of difficult conversations, they actually could be very easy conversations if you have them right at the beginning. If you say, this is your role, this is what success looks like in 12, 18 months, we're gearing up for, for this series A, we're gearing up for, you know, series B, whatever it is. I want you over the next 12 months, 18 months, if you've learned this, if you've got the company to this, now, what do you want to do from there? Because this is what, this is what the company's going to need after that point. Now, to do that, one or two things have to happen. You've got to massively step up and step into this thing that we need to see all this, 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 this. Or it might be that we're going to hire someone else in to do the international marketing or whatever. Now, at that point, the relationships are going to change. The dynamics are going to change between me and you and, and other people in the team. Do you, want to, do you want me to help you transition into another business at that stage But you can take all that skills and you can go in at a higher point with a better equity stake or whatever? Or do you want to come and stay and learn off this person so that in three, four, five years' time, this is where you're at? That's a really easy conversation if someone takes ownership of that at the beginning. Because again, it comes down to the entrepreneur versus the business owner that you talked about. So the, the, the reactive person waits till it's a problem and then goes, oh crap, now I've got to have this awkward conversation with this guy who's in the trenches with me right at the beginning. And now I've got to feel as though we're not going to be friends anymore because I've got to hire someone above him. But the proactive person has had that conversation already. The expectation's already there. And then it's just, well, how do we manage it? And actually that person's taken ownership from the very beginning of where they're going to be.
0: And the other part of that? is the regular performance reviews and regular coaching. If you're doing that along the way and there are regular milestones that are clearly defined and there's regular coaching from senior executive level through to management level, through to the uh, operational people, and you build that into the culture, then none of this comes as a surprise. And there is a career path, there's a development roadmap, everybody is on a growth curve and everybody is developing along the way Because if what you're doing is you're hiring someone to be the finished article when they come, then frankly, what you're going to end up with is an awful lot of people uh, who are going to get in the way of your growth because they'll be afraid of the change. Now, if on the other hand, it's part of the recruitment process, you are contracting with them and saying, what will happen is every week, we will spend half an hour together coaching. And this is an equal conversation where we both have potency you're protected because nothing you say in that will be used against you to punish you and you have permission to say your piece so this is the three p's of coaching also i will expect you to come prepared to those coaching sessions and one side will come from me one session will come from you and we will alternate because i as your manager will have things that i need you to do and you Uh, will have areas that you will want to develop and on a regular basis not only will we be uh, doing coaching but we'll have regular performance reviews so that you know what progress you're making and as part of your role you will keep a journal and that journal will track your progress so that you can see the progress that you're making and it will be part of the coaching process too and you will be compensated on that and it's mandatory part of your role, because if you do keep that, then I know you will make more progress and we will also be able to tackle your issues quickly without any emotion attached to it. If you do that in the recruitment process and in the onboarding process, and from day one, uh, that is part of the process, and you need a good onboarding process, and a good onboarding process is 120 days. And there's a reason for that. In the first four months, a new employee is putting you, the job, the company on probation. They're deciding, is this the job I was sold? Is my boss an ass? Was I better off where I was? Can I do this job? Do I like the people I'm working with? Do I like the customers I'm working with? And was I better off or would I be better off somewhere else? If you don't have that 120-day onboarding process, and I would go even further and have a pre-onboarding process during their gardening leave or their notice period, then you will set them up to fail. And that onboarding process needs to be very prescriptive, especially with veterans. What do they need to know? By when do they need to know it? Where can they find the information they need to do it? How will it be measured? To what standard? What do the red flags look like? And what are the consequences for non-performance? If you don't have that, then chances are what you'll end up with is hiring an A player who will become a B or a C player inside that four-month period.
1: 100%. And I think it's one of the terms I like to use with people is to create entrepreneurs. So people who've got high... Autonomy over their area of the business, whatever that might be, and you know they're really left to get on with it. They take ownership of it, which again, personal power is a part of emotional intelligence profiling. So it's people who you know to what extent they feel they have control over their own their own destiny, over the, their own outcomes, and that's a big big thing for anybody in a business.
0: I'll, I'll just caveat what David has said there. There is a very big difference between hiring someone and thinking, well, I've hired a big boy, I'm going to leave him to do it. That is management by abdication. Um, Yes, yeah, yeah, sorry. A guided process and the what is clearly defined. How they get there is up to them, but it's your responsibility as the hiring manager to ensure that you are facilitating and helping them uh, along the way. Even with veterans, even with highly experienced executives, That onboarding process will make a massive difference. Did you know that two out of five executive hires fail within six months? Now, if you think about that, that's 40% of your vision being pulled from under you. Now, that's a very expensive hiring mistake. And more often than not, it's on you. And the question I always like to ask, which I borrow from my pal Antonio Garrido, when hires don't work out or they're complaining about their staff is did you hire them that way or did you make them that way because the responsibility is on the hiring manager and more often than not they made them that way because these people were good in a previous role or else you wouldn't have hired them and as a result you have failed so leadership being a founder being a ceo is a massive responsibility And you cannot afford to be faffing around doing the minutiae. You need to let go of that stuff, systematize, hire well, make sure that you've got the uh, structure in place, make sure you have a good, solid strategy and clear vision that's communicated to everybody and everyone who is involved buys into it and recruit for that fit and make sure that you're clear about what is going to be measured because what you measure happens, what you don't doesn't and focus on leading rather than lagging indicators so that people have the ability to adjust their behavior in order to achieve the intended outcome. And so often that is missed in tech scale-ups. And the net result of that is you grow very fast for a short period of time, and then you fall off the cliff, crash and burn. So David, what's the second question they should ask, but they don't?
1: What do I want my role to look like in X number of years? Because if you're looking at your team going, well, hang on a minute, I'm going to have to have some awkward conversations with my team, chances are someone might have to have an awkward conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, the stats on, what is it, 85% of founders or CEOs get removed from a company when it hits 20 million turnover, right. or, you know, they step down from their role um, or change their role. Again, it comes down to planning. You know, most people, if you're really honest with yourself, if you're saying someone else, look, in two or three years' time, when the company hits these, this, this, and this benchmark, I don't know if you're going to be the, the person to run this department or do this role, then it'd be a totally justifiable question for them just to turn around and say, Well, what happens when to your role when we hit those things? How will you be in that
0: role? Oh, that's um, a lovely interview question if you're being interviewed.
1: Yeah, you'd have to have balls the size of a house to ask that to the CEO, wouldn't you? But oh, yeah. that's the kind of person you want to employ. That's yeah, exactly the kind of thinker that I would, you'd go, right, on the spot, here's the job, off you go, sunshine.
0: One of the best examples of this that I've ever met is Tom Showdorf, who took Splunk from 42 million to 1.2 billion in five years. And he welcomes coaching. He has a number of coaches, he's got people he goes to and turns for help. He asked for help from his people, uh, massively vulnerable, but in such a powerful way. Uh, and it, it's incredibly empowering as well to, uh, to work with someone like that. Because I've um, spoken to and trained a number of people who worked for Tom, one, two, four, six levels deep from him. And uh, without exception, when I ask about who the greatest sales leader they've worked with, they always bring up Tom Sheldorf's name. And it's a joy to know the man because he is so humble but massively empowering. And that, I think, is the key to great leadership. Leaders don't create followers. They create the next generation of leaders and they empower their people. And what he did is just breathtaking. You look at the success and the culture that he left behind, even today, years after he left, Splunk still has that entrepreneurial culture and that culture where people challenge and they ask for help and they hold themselves to a massively high standard. So tell me this then, if a founder isn't ready to have that conversation, how do you challenge them?
1: You have the same conversation through the back door. Say so you just say, right, I want you to do an organizational chart for what it looks like in three years' time, or you know, in your wildest dreams, what it would look like, what are the skills of the top people you need, and you kind of start pacing and leading that conversation. Again, if I say, well, you need to do that, they're going to go, but I don't want to do that, and they're not going to do it. And then that's, that's the instant breakdown of in the relationship, because you know you get that, basically they set themselves up to fail, but, and they'll start, then they'll blame you at the end of it. So I try and avoid those conversations at the earliest possible opportunity. The best thing is to sort of start sowing those seeds out so you can kind of pace and lead someone to an outcome of thinking that and taking ownership for for it for themselves. Again, you know, you could it's asking questions of what are the really successful leaders that you could go and approach and chat to about how they've managed transition in their business and what are the skills that they've learned? Oh, that's a good one. So they can go and hear it from someone else. And again, it's just part of that, that growth journey for them. Where they can kind of go on that. but if you just tell them and go, well, if you don't have that conversation now, you might as well resign today. It's not going to help and they're going to get more entrenched in that view anyway. Excellent. Okay, and the
0: third question they don't ask but should? How do I stay happily uncomfortable? <laughs> expand on that. I, I, I think I understand, but expand on
1: it. <laughs> it, it does need some explanation. Growth comes at the edge of your comfort zone. Problem with growing growing a business is that we often oscillate between heavily stressful times when you're so far out of your comfort zone that you're up all night, you do, you know, all the kind of the bored pitch decks the invested things, all that kind of stuff. But when that's over, everyone breathes a sigh of relief and goes, right, let's go back into our comfort zone. Ah, this is nice and safe and warm and it's okay. And you kind of, and then you're gearing yourself up to then go out into the sort of the firefighting way out of your comfort zone phase. Now, the problem is, is that leads to burnout or it leads to stagnation because you, you create a pattern where you just go back to being comfortable as soon as you can. And sure as anything, everyone else in the company will start doing that. So you want to stay at a point where it's, you're not stressed, you're not burned out, but you're on the edge of that comfort zone. So you're always learning, you're always growing, but you're in a good place mentally to do that and take it on. That's where you want to be as the leader.
0: That's really good advice. And again, if you haven't read Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's book on flow, then I would strongly recommend that. And um, a state of flow, according to his research, is induced by creating goals and objectives that are about 7% beyond the perceived reach uh, of an individual. So the goal should not be too much of a stretch, but it should be within their reach, but not beyond their grasp. And uh, you're constantly just stretching the boundary a little. It's incremental. And again, this is where I see a lot of founders and lots of salespeople self destruct because what they do is they set themselves goals that are far too big. And in a lot of private equity and venture uh, capital owned businesses, What we see is a fundamental mistake, which absolutely needs to be addressed. If you're going to take on investment, and my recommendation is try and grow to a point where you don't need to, but if you do have to take on that investment, then agree up front that they will not over-assign quota. Because if you want to kill your business, uh, what you do is you have a target of 100 million, then you add up all the quotas of all the salespeople, and it's 150 million. Yes, The reality is you hit the 100 million. So the CFO, uh, the CEO, the investors are all clanking champagne glasses and patting themselves on the back. But you've got a team that's burnt out, really pissed off and disengaged and probably suffering from high turnover in the sales team and management team. You're suffering from burnout. You'll see conflict, negative, destructive conflict occurring. You will also create a culture that results in blame excuse-making and avoidance, and a culture of cover your ass. And yep. the minute you start to overassign quota, that is what you've catalyzed. So be really clear. If the target's 100, then aim for 107. And have everybody stretch just a little bit beyond, but not too much. Because otherwise, you'll cause people to break. And it's so important that you don't do that again the research on this is absolutely clear where your employees and let me let me state this your employees are more important than your customers okay if you treat your employees well and you create an environment and a culture where they feel highly engaged and there are only about 7 to 10% of employees according to gallup's latest research that are highly engaged but Companies that have highly engaged employees generate 430% higher profit per employee. Yep. They generate 290% higher reven- um, revenue per employee. There is 40% lower staff turnover. There's 20% higher production. And the study that looked at the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016, where basically you just had to be listed to grow. The average growth of uh, share price was 14.73%, something like that, uh, across the S&P. However, the companies that had highly engaged employees grew by 42.33% per annum in their share price. Now, if you're a hard-nosed um, capitalist and you want to see a bigger check coming back from the one you put in, then focus on developing a highly engaged workforce particularly in your sales and marketing and customer success and customer account teams because those are the people who are touching your customers and what they what you should also be doing is looking asking this question rather than how can we get investment how can we build a long lived successful business that is highly profitable with highly engaged employees and delivers satisfied lifelong customers because if you do all of that then you're going to start to see massive growth so tell me this what do you when you're having conversations with investors how do you constrain them from the worst vagaries of their profession
1: in what sense check their
0: check uh, their expectations uh, and check that and how do you stop them basically trying to Burn out the, the business. I'm going to steal this from one of my clients
1: because it was utterly brilliant. He was raising money for um, his wife's company, and he worked in VC and private equity. And he was just in the discussions just to raise the money. So it was, it was a bit of a gamekeeper turned poacher, which was hilarious situation. Anyway, they were looking to raise on a, uh, I think it was a three, four, five million, you know, uh, valuation. And there was a <laughs> he went into some of these. Investor meetings, and they said, Right, so how are you going to get this to a billion? And he said, Okay, right, I'll stop you there. You're not going to give us money, but I'm now going to give you a lesson in how you should run these conversations. Like, what? Ah. I wouldn't want your money because you're clearly an idiot. Now, (laughs) your metrics are based on a 10x. So you shouldn't be asking how we get to a billion because that's ridiculous on a 4 million valuation. What you should be asking is how we get it to a 40, 50, maybe even 60 million valuation. Because then you get your check back, you look like a superstar, and everyone's going home happy. For me to give you, uh, you know, whatever X is above that is fantasy land. And I can tell you, you're going to get made up answers. What you should ask is, how are you going to get your 10x back? So how are you going to get it from a 3, 4, 5 million valuation to a 30, 40, 50 million valuation? That's a very easy answer. Well, what's the answer then? I'm not going to tell you because this conversation is now over. <laughs> well, I'm giving you tips for your next investor meeting where you don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> Poor guys. But that is guys the thing.
0: nothing. They fucking deserved it. <laughs> I've got but, no sympathy for them. Uh, when, yeah. when, they, when they behave like that, then they demonstrate that they have no right to play.
1: You're setting everybody up for this. Well, either you're, a, you're going to be a unicorn or you're going to be a pain in the arse or I'm not really going to be that interested in you. So straight away if someone's asking those questions, don't take their money because they're going to guarantee be asked to deal with. But I think that's the thing of just going, actually saying to investors, this is our game plan. I'm going to build this business on looking after our employees, on growing a great business. And if we do that, everything else looks after itself. The kind of money person who put money into to a comment like that is the kind of investor you really want because they're going to give you time, they're going to allow mistakes and they're going to, you know, they're going to back you. Because you're trying to build something that's going to outlast. this, is, You're not just pumping something on steroids to then you know, flip it and try and get your money out quickly.
0: I'm working with a number of scale-ups at the moment. And what's really interesting is how devoid of reality many of the investors are. Because they think in an enterprise deal, you just turn up, show the product, and miraculously people buy. Yeah. The, the evidence is out there and the results are not. And one of the challenges is getting the investors to recognize that in order to speed up, you have to slow down. You have to put in place a good recruitment process so that you hire well, that you have, once you've hired those people, you help them to succeed and do their best work, uh, which means that they have to have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And often the CRO or the founder has to play blocker in order to stop acts of idiocy being perpetrated by the investors demanding stupid things. Because I, I think this obsession with quarterly reporting um, in the uh, the scale-up phase, bef- certainly before you've gone public, I, I, I kind of get it when you've gone public because if your share price tanks, then you become vulnerable to acquisition um, and then asset stripping. And yeah, that's a career-ending move. But prior to going public, you have no need for this quarterly reporting. Uh, What you should be doing is building and designing your sales operation the right way. And there must be really effective understanding of who your ideal customer is and why it is that they need what you have. So what's the need that the company is fulfilling? Do you have evidence that this uh, need is unmet by potential customers? Have you validated your concept? Who are the competitors and what do their financials look like? How quickly could existing suppliers imitate the idea? So you need to understand that. You need to understand that a very clear value proposition when you're selling against your competition and that the value proposition is timely and relevant to the people who are buying it. Uh, You need to understand how your market's defined And you're looking for all this evidence to prove that this is a viable proposition. Once you have all of that, then what you need to do is make sure there is alignment and full integration from marketing, lead generation, sales, then the customer success, customer service, account management side. But all of those other moving parts that uh, are touched by the impact of sales Operations, professional services, finance, legal, uh, all of those need to be working in concert. And that means you have to spend, I, I, Yes, you know, building a business is a cerebral act. You know, most of it is down to how well you've done your thinking and built those rock solid foundations. Once you have all of that, then it's really a matter of implementing those processes and then holding uh, the individuals to account on a regular basis to make sure that you are moving in the right direction together. But so often what I see is they start out with all this good intention and then reality, and I use that in inverted commas, reality takes over. And like you said, uh, you know everything starts turning to shit because then people start burning out they forget, uh, they get you know, out of their comfort zone. Uh, sorry, they, get to, uh, f- they go from being out of their comfort zone into their comfort zone, and then they move into firefighting. So what are the symptoms that you look for when you're working with companies to help you identify when a company is at risk of going into that death spiral?
1: It's those two things. So it's either a leader who's phenomenally stressed and taking on all the burden themselves Trying to be the sort of hero or you know whatever it else is. and you can just see people. The rescuer, yeah, people being disengaged, not being used, not being challenged you know and, and engaged really it comes back to the engagement point so often in these conversations it's 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 you come back to these same key things, and it's engagement if you're engaged employees they'll take ownership of things, and if you don't engage them they won't take ownership of things, and then you're going to have a very lonely death and um, it's part of that. Or someone who's going, yeah, everything's going really well. Why would I need a coach? And you know, that's, again, it's a similar sign of, well, as you said, with the, the uh, that is rich that brilliant um, entrepreneur that, that you knew or you know, some of the best people in the world, whatever they do, are some of the most coached people. Tom Brady, uh, we're going to take it into sport for a second. Really sorry if you're not into sport. Tom Brady, NFL superstar, won six Super Bowl rings. is one of the most coached people in the world. He has a coach for everything: nutrition, sleep, stretching, flexi- you know, flexibility. All these kind of things. And it's no surprise he's still in the NFL, getting paid thirty million dollars a year at the age of forty-two. Wow! Nice money if you can make it. But that's because he's—you know—he's so coached that he's so dialed in. The people who, if you go up to your average club golfer and say, "I can save you five, six, seven shots around," they'll go, "Oh, okay, you know, great." Okay, well, great, but it's, you know, can I do it? You know, you've got all those mental things to go through. If you went to, up to Tiger Woods and said, I could save you one shot or half a shot over four rounds in a major you know, championship, he would go, how much is this going to cost? Because he knows the value of it. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: and elite people, often the people who most engage with, with coaching and everything else, if you're not, people who don't do that, you know, you, you soon find out that <laughs> it was it's the beginning of a slippery slope.
0: I interviewed a chap called Graham Keane, who's a positive psychologist. And yeah. he mentioned something that was really insightful, which is where you have highly engaged employees, you get discretionary effort. And discretionary effort is the effort that they put in above and beyond because they feel that they are doing important, meaningful work. They're doing important, meaningful work with and for people they love and care about. And that. Is priceless. And that is uh, the significant point of difference and the competitive edge that companies that have highly engaged employees offer. And also,
1: at the root of it, this is the thing that every entrepreneur should love about this it costs nothing. Absolutely. (laughs) It costs so little to engage somebody. It doesn't usually cost them. There's what five areas of engagement trust, belonging cared for, appreciated and recognized, uh, recognition. And the fifth one is just off the tip of my tongue. Probably come back in a second. None of them cost anything. They're all things that can be so easily done that get so much extra out of employees. And we see it all the time in the, the world around us. We see it in sports all the time when a lesser team beats a team which was worth far more because they have paid more for those players. And you just know how to engage them. You know, in football, jorgen Klopp, I think he's a very good person to look at for kind of performance and getting the best out of people. footballing terms, Liverpool squad isn't the most expensive, but you can be darn hard to press to beat them because they have that cohesiveness. There's another great Jürgen Klopp quote that I loved. It was in an interview just before the Champions League final where a reporter asked him, so what do you do differently in preparing for like the Champions League final? And he looked at this guy like he just didn't understand the question. He goes, well, if we were to prepare differently for a final, that would mean there's a better way to prepare for a football game. If there's a better way to prepare for a football game, why wouldn't we do that
0: every game? There's a fabulous book called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And the fundamental principle is do the basics well consistently over time and mean it. And the key is to do less but better on purpose. Find ways of shaving off the stuff that you don't need to do So, that you can focus on the fundamentals. And every business that I've ever come across that is immensely successful and people love working in really focuses on the basics. They have complexity without complication. And it's really important that we focus on always doing our best. And so, to um, paraphrase Jurgen Klopp, perfect practice makes perfect. If you're doing a role play, act as if your life depends on it. Uh, When you're going around the golf course, don't just go through the motions. Intentionally, deliberately improve. Every shot, you set yourself up. You make sure that you're in the right posture. You're in the right position. You relax your leading arm. Uh, You let the club do the work. You uh, make sure that your breath is under control and uh, you visualize where the ball is going to go. What you don't do is just keep practicing your shit shot because you will become highly proficient at finding water, sand, and long grass. So uh, we've come to the top of the hour, David. This has been amazingly interesting. Thank you. Tell me, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? That's a good one.
1: We've just taken on a, a sales goal. I've never done so direct sales. I've always just done referral, which is wonderful. but. You can't, it's hard to predict. So, we're looking at actually setting up those, these, a lot of the structures and things that you've talked about. This lazy thing, which is probably just to ask you if you could coach her and work something yeah. else out on that. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's, it's doing the hard work of actually a lot of the things that you've talked about, which is what is the need for the customer? What is the need for the client? And how does it fit in? What do the competitors do? And that's the thing. So, that's where a lot of my brain power is going because I've never had to do it before. I'm usually just like, well, Laura, just wait for an email and someone will say, can I engage you? Which is lovely to do. But we don't do that anymore because we're going to go actively go out and really grow the business. So <laughs> okay. um, I saw your face there. Don't worry. Actually, shock. Um, so
0: yeah, so we're looking at doing those. Um, so that's something that we're sort of is burning a lot of brain power at the moment. Okay. Well, the, that 120 day onboarding plan is really key. So break down the first 120 days into what she needs to know and how she needs to do things. And every day there is one thing. And make sure that there's a clear standard to which she has to attain and how it will be measured. And again, at the end of the, the beginning of the day, end of the day, um, you have you bookend it. So what's the most important call that you are going to make today? Okay. What's the intended outcome? What's the agreement you have in place with that prospect as to what will happen by the end? Okay, show me your plan. And The key is not to burn through those opportunities. Do you know that seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting? That is a monumental waste of money and time. I have a 96% conversion rate on qualified prospects. Now, that's not every cycle because I disqualify a whole load early. But it means that my prospecting requirement is minimal. Um, and none of us like prospecting i mean people who do you know they're very rare uh, but most people who say they do are either lying or they haven't done it Uh, because it's it's a crashing ball but it's essential and the key is you need to have regular contact with customers so it's the the thing you measure is not dials but unique effective conversations every day i can talk to you about the other stuff as well another time yeah It's the daily unique effect of conversations and uh, making sure that there is a contract with the prospect as to why you're calling and what will happen at the end and then end with another contract. And this is where a lot of salespeople fall down because they don't agree a clear next step. Tell me this, what, what are you reading, watching, listening to that you rate?
1: My reading is very, very, very varied. A lot of it's around, I love the sort of books around the startups, that Blood one, I think it's called Bad Blood or something like that. It's a really good one. It's about, is it Thranos? That was the great Ponzi scheme that turned yeah. out to be. A lot of those kind of things. Uh, Bad love. Blood
0: is by John Carreyu, C a w r e y r o u. Yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, I
1: think so. it. And then I just have books all around me all the time. I read this the other day which is called The Centre Brain which is quite interesting about the kind of power of the brain about persuasive behaviours things like that that's quite a, that's, that was an interesting one yeah just uh, yeah that's just what's around me right now I've got books on emotion intelligence Unlocking High Performance this one's the next one on the list which is Drive which is all about understanding people's motivations so yeah, yeah that's a, a good book of, I've read that yeah and a lot of these things I take the view of I'm not an, I'm a white belt in what I do I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm really you know beginning of my learning in terms of all this stuff i've been doing it for twelve years, but I'm still a white belt
0: Absolutely. and that's really healthy. Always approach a subject that you're meant to be an expert in with a child mind and that curiosity of an eight year old it certainly served me very well i'm conscious of the time and my final question is this you you've got a golden ticket and yeah. it's not about regret, but if you could go back and advise the idiot david age twenty three what choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear?
1: Well, the idiot David at 38 is still here. Um, I would ask more. So just straight up ask people for help. Ask people for contacts. Ask You don't ask enough. I'd connect more with people. Get out there. Put yourself out there. You know, Go and put yourself around. You know, Always try and be the stupidest person in the room. You're going to at least learn oh, yes. at high speed. Uh, and that leads into the learn more. Just always be a sponge and just go and hoover up things and test things and learn. Fabulous. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn. Just find me on LinkedIn, David Barkley. I have a chat to anybody or evfounders.com is a company website. So go and have a look there. We can do an introductory session if anyone's interested in coaching. I love chatting to people. I might not be the right person for you, but I might know the right person for you. Or you actually might just need an A, B, or C that we can solve in 15 minutes, or it might be that leads on something else. So happy to chat to anybody. Fabulous.
0: David Barkley, thank you thank you. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment, and share, and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with either me or David, then email me at marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S, laughs com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.